Welcome to the Hey Sanat podcast. I'm your host, Sanat Janeski, and I'm here to have real life conversations about the things that we need to hear, but don't really like to talk about. So tune in each week as we laugh and cry our way to a new perspective. Now let's get started. Hello, hello, Christina Rose is in the house. Yes, what's up? (laughs) I'm so excited to have you here today. Um, I've been wanting to do something like this with you because I love listening to your voice. You have this like mesmerizing voice and you you. have a background in radio. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, This is going to be, it's going to be good. It's going to be so good. You and I actually have known each other since childhood because we're, we're cousins. We're step cousins. I I, I just like to call it cousins, Uh, (laughs) but it only in the last few years, have we really started to develop like a friendship Mm-hmm. through Instagram and through both being advocates for mental health and self-love. Exactly. I'm really happy to be here with you. And we're going to be really talking- nice connecting with you for sure. Thank you. Mm-hmm. It's it's divine. It's definitely been divine. We're going to be talking about your struggles with mental health, your diagnosis, and then also touching a bit on your spirituality and mm-hmm. and how that has impacted your life as well. I've got lots to say. Awesome. (laughs) Perfect. So let's get started. Where where do you want to start? I guess I could start by saying that like my mental health, my entire life has been rough. My, my whole life is kind of like a mental health journey story. Mm -hmm. And it, it definitely started like from in the womb to today. It's been one long mental health journey because I was born into a family with someone who has mental health challenges and severe mental health challenges back then too. I guess I could say my diagnosis is bipolar disorder. I only got my diagnosis when I was 32. Wow. I lived from, in hindsight, I'm thinking from the age of 12, I started exhibiting signs of hypomania. So for those that are are new to this world of mental health, can you please explain what bipolar disease is? Yeah, so bipolar disorder, it's called bipolar because two polar opposites, right? Depression and mania. It's some people like to call it a spectrum because you can go um, from depression to mania, but not everybody goes from like the the depths of depression to the heights of mania. Some are like here on the spectrum and they only go this high on the spectrum. So it really is dependent on the person. When I'm talking about hypomania, I'm talking about elevated mood, sometimes grandiosity, um, like a lot of energy. Sometimes it can sort of tip over into like a mixed state hypomania, which is a lot more challenging to experience because it's like irritability becomes a factor as well and anger. And then when you go into the more manic, you're looking at delusions and then psychosis is just off the scales. Right. And I'm really sorry. I I called it bipolar disease, but it is bipolar disorder. So I just want to say, I'm sorry for, for that. And, and just for everyone that's listening, I apologize. Um, it is a disorder, like you said, Mm -hmm. and, and there's a difference between disorder and disease. So let's call it by its right name. Yeah. Now you mentioned that you were probably 12 when, and is this when you started to notice or was this people around you? Neither. This is hindsight. So hindsight is 2020. When I got my diagnosis at 32 and started looking back, 
like as early as the age of 13, I believe I was in a hypomanic state, you know, and some some not great things happened to me when I was in that state. So looking back, I, I kind of see it, but it was never enough for people to really notice that there was something going on. It was just mood shifts for, for a period of time. And when I turned 16, I started taking antidepressants because the mostly I was depressed. Mm. And the antidepressants wouldn't really work or they would work for a little bit and then they would stop working. But I just had to deal with it. Like I had no support. I didn't have any counseling. I didn't have a, a psychotherapist or a psychiatrist. I just was going to like my family doctor. And then when I was 18, I started taking um, antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds. And it's known that antidepressants and bipolar people will can cause mania. So it's like I would start a pill like in my 20s, for example, when I was working in radio at a brand new job, I was just losing my mind. I just didn't feel good. So I started an antidepressant. Well, I felt so much better for like six months exercising, eating healthy. I was happy. I was outgoing. Everything was great. And then boom, crash. So it's like in hindsight, looking at that, the antidepressant caused some hypomania. And then once the mania levels off, you crash and and burn (laughs) into depression. Yeah. And so they kind of counteract each other. Yeah. Yeah. And, and these, like you said, 13, 16, 18, like these are the years where our hormones are like the levels are going up and down through the roof, changing so much. And now you're taking this medication. Yeah. Not, not really knowing what is going to happen. Right. Yeah. And, and this is probably what, 16 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, <laughs> I wish it was 16 years ago. It's more like almost like 20, <laughs> 20 years ago, but it was yeah. a different time. 20 years ago, it was, yeah. you know, even 16 years ago, it was like, it was just, we're developing so quickly and, and so many more resources now out there for mental health, but you didn't have that type of support growing up and, and growing through this. You know, I, it, it's more a matter of like back then who knew what you were supposed to do with mental health. Like really, I remember my dad in elementary school told the school that we might need a little more support. Mm-hmm. And we ended up sitting with a social worker once or twice. That was it. Yeah. Social worker was an old lady, never got through to us, just kept asking us questions. We were quiet, like we weren't talking. And that was all that I ever remember about trying to get support in my childhood. My mom is bipolar too. She's bipolar one as well. And her mental health when I was a baby and a child was was just severe and it was off the charts. And she was in hospital for months at a time, but leading up to the hospital was like the most stressful crisis time because she just was not well. Mm-hmm. And you, and you grew up in that environment. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in in the stress and the crisis, you know, I thrive now in crisis situations. I do my best. It's when things calm down and are like perfect that I struggle. (laughs) I think I struggle because of that. Well, it's like a trauma response. It's like, it's like, that's what, you know, and you talked about from when you were in the womb, like there's also generational trauma. And as a woman, I don't know if you know this, or if if people really know this, but when a woman is carrying the embryos inside of her of, of the next baby or the eggs that is going to come, 
well, our eggs are developed in the womb. Mm-hmm. And what that means is you, you were developed in the womb of your grandmother. When she was carrying your mother, her eggs were already developed, which were you. Yes. Cool. It's okay. so cool. Yeah. It is so profound, but that is what generational trauma is. So you are born into this world already carrying the traumas of two generations before you. And, and then your mom was carrying two generations and, and it just keeps going back. And so when yeah. we talk about generational trauma and, and stopping the cycles, it's like, what can we do now, even before having children to stop the trauma from the next few generations. And, and I didn't start my healing until after my daughter was born. So Mm -hmm. it's like, it's going to take a lot of work for me and her Mm -hmm. and my together at least. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it goes far before the womb. Yeah. And think about it. Like when I was in the womb, my mom was in a manic psychosis state, like, because she couldn't be on her medications and I was born into it. Yeah. Almost, you know, um, I've actually decided not to have kids for that reason. Um, like my mom's side of the family, the genetics, just mental health, mental health and genetic diseases. So it sucks. Like I've always dreamed of carrying my own child into this world. But at the same time, I'm like, if I carry my own child into this world, chances are statistically and scientifically that it will have some mental health challenges. I think a big part of how you grew up as a child too helps you develop into a well-rounded adult. So if I was in a good place when I did bring this child into the world, even if the child had some issues, sure, but I'm still battling with my mental health at 35 years old. Mm -hmm. So when, when would I be ready? So it's, 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 it's a little bit of a sticking point. It sucks. It hurts but it's my decision. What's great about growth is that you don't have to stick to one decision is maybe who knows if you change your mind, there are different resources out there. And this isn't to change your mind. I'm just saying that we are flowing and we are evolving so quickly as a species that we we can change our minds and we're allowed to, mm-hmm. to change our minds. And there are other options and resources out there Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or yeah. motherhood. There's so many children in the world that need love. So, I mean, yes. I'll be auntie. I'll yeah. Be auntie. <laughs> and they'd be so lucky to have you as an auntie. And and you're allowed to have that, to make that decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My body, my choice, right? It, and exactly. Okay. Exactly. So when you went to your doctor at 16 years old and the doctor prescribed the antidepression medication, was that the first option provided to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was crying for help, like just begging my mom to do something. So I guess that was just what she was able to do bring me to the doctor, right? Mm-hmm. All I remember was antidepressants, like I don't remember anything else, any other kind of supports put in place or any any therapies or no, it was just the antidepressant and I was sent on my way. And what resources are out there now? 
Yeah, the good question. There are plenty of resources. If you're looking for some help, I would suggest starting with your family doctor, ask for a referral. You can also call if you're in Ontario, 211 is a great resource for, uh, for I want to say neighborhood, um, but I'm community supports okay. uh, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So 211, 311 also is, is, is an option. There's crisis lines available. You know, I do have to say though, when I was a kid, I think I called the kids help phone a few times. Okay. Come to think of it. So there is the kids help phone as well. If you're, if you've got a child who's struggling, maybe give them the number. So when they're having a meltdown, they can call the kids help phone line and the kids help line will help them regulate themselves. If, if, if you're struggling to do that, you know, it's, it, there's always an option. Do you remember the phone number? Because I remember like grade seven, eight, even maybe grade six, like that they were always on the commercials. They okay. were always telling us what that number was. And it's like eight, six, six something. And I kind of like in the back of my brain is like remembering it a little bit. Yeah. yeah. But what I'll do is when I make the post about this episode is I'll share that number as well. Cause it's a very important resource and it's free. And I'll also share the two one, one number that you, you mentioned as maybe well, like an Ontario crisis line number, just in case. Yes. Um, so the crisis lines have been like a huge savior to me in the last five years before that. I kind of was always disappointed when I called because I would call feeling terrible and I would hang up still feeling terrible. But when you realize what they're there for, they're there for right now, this moment, help you regulate yourself again, get you back down, planted firmly on the ground and talk you through it a little bit. They're not going to solve all your problems, but if you're struggling to regulate yourself, they may be able to help. Okay. That's really important to know. I think bringing you down and kind of grounding you will give you some clarity mm-hmm. in what the next move is. Absolutely. Could you imagine, like, have you ever had a panic attack? I have. Yeah. So a panic attack that you just can't get out of and you're just like hyperventilating and crying and whatever. Yeah. Well, you call them and they'll talk you down. They'll they'll do that. Okay. What are five things you can see? What are four things you can hear? What are three things you can touch, Mm. you know, like these grounding techniques or deep breaths or, you know, whatever. It's always nice to have someone there with you when you're struggling to regulate. (laughs) Yeah. And when you're having a panic attack, it's like your nervous system is just going berserk, like panic. Something is happening. We're going to shut down adrenaline and like you can't breathe. Yeah. And like you said, hysterically crying. And so ice, taking ice and just like putting it on your arm or your wrist. And just so that you can like really quickly feel the impact of something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Cold water, splashing cold water on your face helps, but it's hard to do when you're alone, Mm -hmm. when you're alone. And, and like, I've had my panic attacks alone. I've never had them publicly. Really? Yeah. I've been alone having panic attacks and then I have to just ride it out. It hasn't mm-hmm. happened a lot. It's happened a couple times in my life, but I, I, I just get to a point where I fall asleep. Mm. I like, I just go to sleep and then so I, you, you regulate yourself and then you, you manage to fall asleep. Yeah. That's what's happened, but uh, I've been alone. Yeah. I had a panic attack publicly once. Okay. Oh, man. It was, I'm going to call it at the Ontario uh, motor vehicle place. This old man, he was deaf. He couldn't hear, was asking a very simple question of the lady, but she wasn't giving him a straight answer. And 
my adrenaline starts going because I'm trying to make the decision, am I going to step in and help this man or am I going to keep quiet? Yeah. And she was being kind of rude to him. So adrenaline rushes, instant panic attack for me. So I managed to keep my cool, stood up for him. I said, sir, this is the answer you need. It's not that hard. Here's my card. I was selling cars at the time. If you need anything, call me. But after I stood up for him, it was my turn to go see the teller and I was hyperventilating and having a panic attack. I had to go to the bathroom and just try and calm myself down so I could finish my business. But it was it was like panic attacks in public are rough. <laughs> see, I think people are still so scared to step in and help because they just don't know how and don't know what to do. And I think if you experience anyone else having a panic attack, panic attack or some type of mental breakdown, mm. it's just holding space for them. Yeah. and support is the best thing that you can possibly do. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. I'm not sure if anyone really could have helped me that day because I mean, I did what I had to do. And then I went to the bathroom, finished my panic attack and then came out and did my mm -hmm. business. So like everyone that was there when it happened, were basically gone by the time it came out. And the only people that knew what was going on were the tellers. <laughs> yeah. And it just goes to show you that people are experiencing these types of events all the time, all around us. Mm -hmm. And we're so oblivious. Exactly. Well, yeah, yeah, we are because people don't necessarily let strangers in. Right. Yeah. I think that's why it's so important to be kind all the time. We just never know. You never know when you're going to be the one that needs it. And you mm. never know what kind of impact your tiny act of kindness is going to have on another individual. That person might remember it for the rest of their life. Yeah. Imagine. I would. Maybe not if you bought them a coffee in the drive-thru, but man, if you saved them or like stand up for them, it, it'll, uh, it'll definitely make an impact. I actually just remembered my public panic attack. Okay. I did have a public panic attack and I completely forgot that that's what this was, but I actually was, uh, at a club in Toronto. Okay. And this is before I even lived here and I'm not a huge drinker. I I've never have been a huge drinker. I, I could go out like to clubs all the time and not even have one drink. Uh, mm -hmm. and that was my plan for that night. I wasn't going to be drinking. And then I got there and we're at this huge club in Toronto and everyone's having a good time. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to have a drink. And my drink actually got drugged. <gasps> yes. And so this isn't, so this isn't even what the conversation was going to be about, but just what you said, yeah. like really brought that memory back about someone helping you. Mm -hmm. And so thankfully I wasn't already drunk because had I been, that would have really knocked me out. But because yeah. it was my first drink of the night, it, it was like an outer body experience. Like my body kind of shut down. But then when I realized why I was feeling the way I was feeling, it was the only possible explanation. Right. I started to have a panic attack okay. and a friend of mine from Ottawa, a male friend happened to be at the club at the same time. And he saw me and helped me and I ruined his night and I got mascara all over his shirt and I'll never forget it, but I'll also never forget how he saved me. Yeah. in that moment. And all he did was he literally was um, like almost carrying me out of the club, got me outside and used his words to try and calm me down. Wow. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's an experience. Yeah. Yeah. But see how those memories come back. Like yeah. you'll remember that forever. Oh, absolutely. So mm -hmm. much gratitude for that. 
for that yes. moment and that happening. But we kind of derailed here a little bit talking <laughs> about the panic attacks. I'm sorry. I want to go back to now you said that you are an, a young adult and you had six months of just like an amazing experience, life-changing, and then you crash. So mm-hmm. did you continue to remain on medication? Yeah, because I didn't know that what was happening was a, a roller coaster ride. I thought I had treatment resistant depression and that the pills would work for six months and then just stop working. So that was just me filling in the blanks there. And I was just going to a walk in clinic. So I wasn't being followed by someone. It was, I was in a brand new town, small town, not easy to get in. So they had this, uh, this walk in clinic that I went to and they prescribed me another antidepressant and off I went. <laughs> well, you talk a lot about hindsight in hindsight. Now, what kind of support did you need in that time? I needed someone to realize what was happening to me because I didn't. Awareness when you're hypomanic or manic sometimes isn't there. And that's part of why it's such a challenge is because you get into that state, but you don't know you're in that state. You just think you're doing really, really well. (laughs) And you're still not diagnosed at this point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're about 10 years away from your diagnosis. Yeah. So I went through it for, for years, just up and down and mostly in depression. Depression really sucks. And my life has been mostly depression. So when I'm not depressed, I count my lucky stars. <laughs> and what does your depression look like? Interestingly, right now, it's, it's mostly a lack of motivation. But I think that's the pandemic. Mm. I think, honestly, I don't think that my depression is really bad right now that the pandemic is just exacerbating how we're all feeling. My depression looks like being in bed a lot, sleeping a lot of hours, uh, not really able to look after my space, feed myself very well. I'm I'm just very glad and lucky that I'm finally on a cocktail of meds that seems to be working for me. I think it's important to highlight that everybody's depression looks different. And it's not always as identifiable as we think. So someone like you, who you said most of your life has been in depression, Mm. people around you might think that's just how you are. Mm. Right. Well, and the the, the other thing is like, people are really good at hiding it. Right. So when you're out at work or you're out in public, like there's a facade up and it's not always easy. Um, And sometimes it falls and people are like, oh, they had a bad moment, but really they're having a bad day, bad month, bad week, bad year, you know? Yeah, depression is a beast. (laughs) Depression and anxiety, they just like, so depression being stuck in the past and anxiety being stuck in the future, right? Like when when, when it's so hard to be in the present moment that you're off somewhere else, it just exacerbates everything. Yeah, and you're so right about being like being able to hide it so well, I've been through really deep depressions in my life and absolutely nobody knew zero people around me knew I got so good at hiding it that I would show up to work super bubbly, super fun. And when I would be just too tired to do that, I would show up as like my tired, depressed self and everyone would panic. What is wrong with her? Someone fix her. And so I stopped doing that because I didn't want the questions. I was like, just leave me alone. Fine. And I'm going to come up and I'm going to be super hyper and I'm going to be super happy. And my depression is, is self-hate and, and it is going back in the past and reliving every single moment and questioning every single decision I've made. 
Mm, that and that's painful and that do you still do you find you still do that or have you sort of gotten to a place now where it's not as bad because you have more self-love so self-love was the answer for me uh and when i say self-love i'm talking like a deep deep level of self-love because that's how deeply i hated myself and so where i'm at now is like completely a contrast but mm. it actually only I had COVID last year Hmm. in April of 2021 and I was sick and I was really sick. And because I was so sick and I had fevers and I wasn't sleeping, it's like, it becomes manic. And, Mm -hmm. and I slipped into a a depression, a delirium, and I slipped back into a depression. And that's when I recognized that my depression is self-hate because for the first time in a few years, I've gone back into this self-hate and to give you an idea of what I was going through, it's, it's so ridiculous. It's almost comical, but it's really sad actually is I was trying to lose weight while being sick with COVID Wow! because someone had said to me, you're going to lose 10 pounds we all lost 10 pounds when we had COVID and that became my mission to lose 10 pounds during COVID and weighing myself and not eating as much because I thought that I had to come out of this 10 pounds lighter. And I became obsessed and hated my body while I was sick. And the only time I could actually feel better was when I started to eat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And so, which is like the opposite of what I wanted to be doing. And I had no taste and no smell, but I would like, I had the best sleep of my life when I had this like huge turkey sandwich that I had made and I couldn't even taste anything, but I made it with love. I put the cheese and I put the mayo and the mustard Uh and like everything, (laughs) couldn't even taste it. And then I slept and, and then I, as I started to get better, I realized like, okay, I have a serious problem. This is like eating disorder level. And this was just like nine months ago. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 when you're that sick, it makes sense that you're going to slide back a little. Yeah. And, it, and yes. it made total sense to me, but that was, that was the last time that it's happened. So since then I've, I've been like, it's been positive. And before mm-hmm. that it was, um, after my mom, my mom died, which at that point would have been five years before that, but right. it lasted like a year. So four mm-hmm. years, yeah. but it, it, it still happens and it still can happen is what I'm trying to say. Well, we're human, right? We, we feel emotions and emotions are energy and that we have to feel it or it gets yeah. stuck. And, and that's why right now it's so important for me to feel physically like I, I've done a lot of body work. I've done a lot of mind work, but now um, sorry, soul work and mm. mind work, but now it's the body because it's so important. And I realized when being sick that my body needs to be healthy for me to maintain this, this feeling of happiness and joy. Yeah. I mean, I, I hear you there because that's where I'm kind of struggling. Like I've got chronic pain issues. So going back to my childhood and early years, mm-hmm. like I weighed 350 pounds at 16. So no wonder I was depressed, you know, and I, my heaviest weight ever again in my twenties was 370. Okay. Now I'm down to like 295. So I'm at wow. my lowest since I was like 15 years old. Congratulations. Thank you. And that's a celebration. Let's celebrate that for just one second. <laughs> All like, right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And that, and honestly, the weight came off because of my 
mental health too. Like I did, um, I lost 50 pounds during a mania one time, hindsight mania. So it was just like a hypomania, nothing too severe that people thought I was crazy or anything, but just enough that I lost the 50 pounds and that gave me that head start, right? So I was able to c- continue and maintain it. But yeah, it is it is a celebration. However, it, it took its toll on my body, right? My knee is really messed up. It causes a lot of pain and living with chronic pain just kind of has a way of getting you down sometimes. You yeah. have to learn how to deal with it, right? And when you are in a state of pain, whether it's emotional or physical, it's mm-hmm. really hard to project as your authentic self yeah. Yeah. because and when that, you're in pain, you're projecting from a place of pain. Yeah. And then there's the fear that you have. Okay. If I overexert myself or if I do too much pain, if I sit too long pain, it's like, you have to figure it out. But I struggle with food. I struggle with eating healthy. I struggle with you know, all the the physical things. I've done a lot of mind work. I'm doing my soul work and my body work is is saying, hello, I'm here. Let's do this. So pay attention. Baby steps. I'm a baby step kind of person. So if you ever ask me for a suggestion for somebody who's struggling with depression, it's baby steps. So if you can't have a shower, wash your face, girl. You know, if you can't. Yes. If you can't clean up, pick up the one piece of Kleenex off the floor. So, yeah, like you wash your face. I'm kind of known as like a skincare junkie. I'm really okay. not like I have a like I invest in my skincare, but it's not because I know or I'm knowledgeable about it or like I want the best stuff. It's because my skincare routine is such an act of self love for me mm-hmm. that when I commit to my schedule for I'm feeling better throughout the yeah. day. And I'm a lot more productive because I have to find the things that are going to work for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it just happens to be that everybody's different. Everybody's different. So find the thing that works for you. And it it is a baby step kind of thing. It is the 1%. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. If that works for you, that's amazing. It did not ever work for me. Yeah. Sustainable. Baby steps works. No, all or nothing never worked for me. No, exactly. Okay. It's always been baby steps. It's always Mm -hmm. been tiny little changes compounded over time. And even if you take five steps forward and three steps back, you're still two steps ahead. (laughs) Well, well, we say this all the time. Growth is never linear. No. And, and what I've learned, yeah, for the people who can't see it's like zigzags. And it's like, I always graph things out. It's a graph in my mind and it's like up and down Uh ebbs and flows. but also contractions. And so if you think of the expansion of the universe, like we have to contract before we expand. If you think about childbirth, you have these contractions before the next expansion. And then what comes from that is the delivery, the birth, the growth. And so contractions are actually a necessary part of the growth process. And so I'm going through it right now. You're feeling a contraction? Yes, because I got a new job. Okay. I haven't worked in a few years. I've been on disability, got a job, and I'm nervous as hell. (laughs) It's like (laughs) that comfort zone, you know, especially through the pandemic has been this tight. It's just been, you know, my comfort zone. And so getting a job forces me to go like that a little bit. I'm just pulling my hands apart here, creating some space because like, my God, I'm going to do it. 
but it's scary. Change is scary. Growth is scary. <laughs> it's so scary. Growth is the scariest thing because you don't know what is on the other side of it. You're doing it blindly, mm-hmm. right? You're pushing the yourself. Great the, the great, great unknown. unknown. There's nobody monitoring it. Yeah. There's no way to measure it. Yeah. yeah, like yeah. There, there's so many scary aspects to it, but when you get there, and when you're on the other side of it, you know, when you are 75 pounds lighter yeah. and it is not to say this about anything, like it's not negative about your weight before it's about mm-hmm. you recognizing that you needed to make a change for your own mental health and for your survival. And I find myself in that place again, even though I'm at my lightest, I'm like, okay, well, the pain is still there. So like, let's do something about it. So we're working on it. Yeah. And and lean into that. And what is it telling you Mm -hmm. and listening to your body? Yeah. That's important. Listening to your body. It's so easy to, to slough that off eh? and and be distracted. And yeah, Well, we're not taught. We're not mm-hmm. taught these fen- fundamental ways of living, of listening to our body and our mm-hmm. own intuition. Yeah. No, that's something that we're growing into now because we figured it out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and that's the whole basis of this podcast is that, you know, each episode might bring a different perspective to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. with that, it's like, how did you eventually get your diagnosis? Mm-hmm. Good and question. what happened in those 10 years? So I've always been proactive with my mental health. You know, when I'm depressed, I go see a doctor, I get another antidepressant, doesn't work. I go back, I go, I've tried therapies, I've done all these things. Um, My diagnosis finally came when I was living in Kingston and I finally got a referral to a psychiatrist in Kingston. And he was like, you know, you're 32 years old. You've had depression all your life. Your mom is bipolar. What if you have bipolar? Okay. And you so knew your did, mom had bipo- bipolar. Yeah. Yeah. So there's okay. that too, right? They did the little test that asked the questions. And sure enough, I got a bipolar two diagnosis. Is that, is that how they test you? They ask questions? Yeah. It's a DSM for like a, like a list of questions. You have to fit five out of seven or seven out of 10 or something like that to, to meet the requirements for diagnosis. So I was diagnosed bipolar two, which because bipolar two is usually more depression and then hypomania, whereas bipolar one is like maybe not as severe depression, but maybe higher mania. Okay. So originally my diagnosis was bipolar two, but when I finally got on mood stabilizer for bipolar disorder, it worked on the depression and sent me the other way. Okay. So now you're manic. So now I'm manic, but this time I know I'm manic. This time I have a psychiatrist following me who's like, yeah, you're hypomanic. Okay. Let's do something about it. But explain what it's like to be hypermanic. Like, what does that mean? And what is a day in the life? Oh man. I kind of want to look up a definition of it real quick. Hypomania and mania are periods of overactive and excited behavior that can have a significant impact on your day-to-day life. Hypomania is a milder version of mania that lasts for a shorter period, whereas mania is a more severe form that lasts for a longer period. It's not really uh, the best example, but you can have like an abnormally high level activity or energy, feeling extremely happy and excited, not sleeping is a big clue or uh, only getting a few hours of sleep, but still feeling rested. That was really the interesting part. I could sleep three hours 
can have all the energy in the world. Wow. So it's like the highs are really high. They really are. And they prevent you from sleeping a lot, um, which just makes it worse. So, so I end up hypomanic for about six months and I was doing okay with it. So we didn't do anything about it. I was just trying to manage it myself and learn how to manage it because it was actually a really beneficial time in my life. I actually learned a lot spiritually and about myself during that hypomanic period. But unfortunately, because we didn't do anything about it, it kept going up and up and up. I ended up manic. So I had some delusions, which are very confusing. Um, They're not quite hallucinations, but it's kind of like beliefs that just sort of implant themselves into your head and all of a sudden you know i'm an undercover agent working at the Mm. train station when i'm on a train trip to ottawa it was like strange and then psychosis would you say it's paranoia i mean i guess so i don't think i had too much paranoia but i had a lot of funny storylines going on in my head okay okay like for example one of them when i was on that train trip i thought i was autistic okay all of a sudden i'm autistic and i'm acting like having some st- stims, you know, how sometimes when people are overstimulated, they, they do like random stims and like strange. I would never do that in my right mind. I would never, ever act like someone else's disorder. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And were you alone? I was alone. And in your time, in your life at that time, were you living alone? I was living alone. Yeah. Okay. And the reason best- I'm asking this question, sorry, is because isolation plays a huge part in yeah. this yeah and my best friend so when the first psychosis hit my friend in kingston my best friend had been supporting me as best as she could but when i went manic and psychotic she was triggered so badly that she just she went the opposite direction and i never talked to her again which was just like holy crap so now i'm in a city my best friend is no longer talking to me i can't afford the rent because Kingston rent is just insane. So I ended up leaving Kingston and moving back in with family for a few months, which really did help because being alone and the pandemic had just hit right after I'd had my psychosis. So I was really drugged up on meds. I was really alone and isolated. It was terrible. It was probably like the worst time I'd ever experienced in my life. I'm so sorry. Yeah, that's that's okay. What can I say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I spent 30 days in hospital that time. Did you check yourself in or did someone else? I call I cried out for help. I was in my apartment delusional and experiencing some pretty severe um side effects of that. And I cried out in the middle of the night for help and my landlord happened to live on the same floor as me. So he came wow. and called 911 and I ended up going to the hospital. And I was naked too when he showed up. Oh, wow. And what I was going through was like, I've never told anybody, I won't say it here either because it's definitely needs a trigger warning. Um, it was just really a weird experience. Well, thank you so much for your vulnerability and just even sharing these parts of your life because we talked about this, like where we can really help people mm-hmm. that, that maybe don't know what is going on, but can relate. Yeah. You know, one thing I want to say, if you're ever dealing with someone who's having a mental break and you can't handle it, 
take the space, but don't abandon them. Like take your space, set your boundaries, tell them you're taking your space. If they can't respect your boundaries at that time, block them, but come back. Like it's not their fault. They're sick. You know what I mean? Like that was the most painful part. Like I had two friends pull back completely when I went psychotic, they never came back. I don't know what I did to deserve that, but that was painful. And it's not even you. It's, it's them. And we hear that all the time. Like, it's not me, it's you or, you know, but it's, it's true when someone can be so cold in their response, Mm -hmm. they're triggered by Mm -hmm. something Mm-hmm. And it's not you because now you are it what well, seems to be in yeah. in the best state yeah. that you've been yeah. in a really long time. Mm-hmm. And they're still not back. Yeah. Yeah. You know, life. Sometimes people just aren't meant to be there forever. Yeah. I don't know why though. I will be honest, like this loss of friendship was harder than any breakup I've ever been through anything I've ever been through. Like, I still think about her too much and it really gets to me. It's like, okay, Christina, let's do a burn ceremony. Let's burn Mm -hmm. the name on a piece of paper so that maybe I stop dreaming about her. (laughs) Maybe I stop thinking about her, you know, it's like, oh my gosh. But I think that's because I'm human and there was a lack of closure. And I think that we're not, we're not told that it's okay to grieve Mm. someone who is still alive. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and adult breakup, friendship breakups, I think, like, I think personally, and I haven't been divorced, but I just have had friendship breakups. I think they're worse than, than what you could possibly think of in, in terms of like a divorce or like a, a breakup of a, a couple, a monogamous mm-hmm. couple, yeah. because they, the relationships are so intimate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your relationship with your best friends are so deeply intimate, sometimes more so than your romantic relationships on a different level. Mm -hmm. And then we lose that. And we're not told that we should be grieving. Yeah. We don't allow ourselves permission to grieve. Exactly. I don't think I feel grief like other people do. Let's just name that. I have never lost someone super close to me by death. So I don't know that what that feels like. So that's kind of a blessing at 35. Grief, I think has a lot of different faces. I think it has a lot of different looks for different people. And mine just feels different from other people because I don't feel that heaviness. You know, that heaviness when you're grieving, like you're just, it's just not there. It's, It's mostly up here. And it's like the thoughts that just won't stop. Well, I'll tell you, I did an episode on grief and yeah, with a grief coach and we shared, both shared our experiences on grief. There are two misconceptions about grief, at least. I mean, I'm sure there are many more, but two that I can name. And one of them is that grief looks the same for everyone. It absolutely does not. There is no one way to grieve. It's like your way is the way. And grief is not an emotion. Grief is a tool filled with different types of emotions that you're supposed to feel and go and go through. Mm, wow. Yes. That's one look at it. <laughs> cool. so, okay. I'm, I'm going to tune into that podcast. <laughs> yeah. So your so your grief is, is not abnormal is mm-hmm. what I want to say. 
And sometimes it takes many years of turmoil before you start realizing that you should be grieving and allow yourself to grieve. And then once you get to that point, for me, it was because of a significant loss of a life. And maybe I wouldn't have been grieving other things in my life had I not gone through that. But now I actively grieve things and experiences way more than I ever have before. And I'll give you a tiny example. Like I, when the kids weren't going back to school because of COVID Mm. just this last past time, I had Mm. quit my job. I had given myself six weeks of no job. And like, this was going to be my time to start an exercise routine and to start eating healthy and to just enjoy some time off before I start something new. And then we get told that the kids are not going back to school and now Mm. they're homeschooling and now they're in my space, taking up my time. And I grieved that. Yeah. I think a lot of parents grieved that. But they didn't know that maybe it was grief. Maybe they were just frustrated or angry and didn't know or felt guilty for it. But I was like, no, I'm going to take the time to grieve a life that I had imagined that is no longer going to be. Yeah. And so grief shows up in different ways and, and it doesn't have to be the loss of a life. Yeah, that's very true. Thank you, Sinat. You're so <laughs> welcome. <laughs> now, since your diagnosis... And since you seem to be on a cocktail of medication that seems to be working for you based on what you're sharing, what else has helped you aside from the medication? What's in your toolbox? Well, my partner, I'll say my partner, like my partner uh, and I have a pretty neat story because I showed up on his doorstep manic. Okay. I did not know this. I don't know this story. We met through radio. He worked in radio. I worked in radio, different times, different cities. He was from Brampton. I was from Ottawa. I was in Timmins one time uh, for work. I was working there for a couple of years. We won an award. So they flew us to Toronto. And while I was in Toronto, that was 2013. I met up with Bruce for lunch. We had lunch. But had you known him prior? Just online. Okay. So you met online, but you both were in radio. Yeah, we met through Facebook, through radio, like groups and stuff. And then when I was in Toronto, we decided to meet for lunch. That was it for a very long time. He would comment on my stuff once in a while. We'd chat once in a while, not very much. And then he sends me a message. Hey, if you're ever in the area, let me know. We'll hang out. I said, (laughs) well, I was manic, so I was up for anything. I was like, hey, I can be (laughs) in the area. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I could be in the area. You paying my gas money? (laughs) <laughs> good for you so he paid my gas money and i showed really? up yeah see ask yeah. for what you want ladies just ask <laughs> and then you might end up engaged like me just, oh yeah <laughs> yeah i show up on his doorstep like already manic but it, it, like i was in my fun time manic so it was like still fun we hung out for like a month at his place i just stayed there and we hung out he had a beautiful backyard but like you know things started progressing with the mania it was getting worse and worse and it got to the point where i was having delusions again and i came back for a lucid moment and i'm like i think i need to go to the hospital and did he recognize this in you did he see the mania or did he just because you showed up in the first place in that state he thought that that was just you I think he thought that was just me at first, but then as it got into the delusions, it got worse and he was like concerned, but he also didn't push me. He didn't push me to go to the hospital. He was sort of just seeing how it was going to play out. But I told him, I said, I think I need to go to the hospital. Mm. So he took me to the hospital here in Brampton 
I spent eight days there. They got me a little more grounded on some meds, came out, was still hypomanic um, because that usually happens for a while after a hospital stay and then eventually crash. So we decided that we were gonna move in together after me hanging out there for a month because we hung out for a month. I was in the hospital, I hung out for a few weeks after the hospital and then he's like, yeah, okay, let's do this. Now, are you in the hospital in Brampton? Yeah. At this point, and your family's yeah. all in Ottawa. My family's all in Ottawa. Yeah. Do they know you're in the hospital? Yes. Okay. Yes, they do. And they know that he's taking care of me too. So, like, he brought me everything I needed to the hospital. He went and bought all this shampoo and stuff, like everything I needed to be at the hospital, he did. And then the support after. And then I went back to Ottawa to pack up my stuff and moved in October of 2019. And I've been with him since. When you are in the hospital, what is that experience like? Like, what are they doing? Are you sleeping there every day? Is it a different section of the hospital? Tell us all about that. The psych wards, not the nicest places on the face of the earth. They're doing their best with what they've got from the government. It's not enough and it sucks. And this is why we talk a lot about raising money for mental health, because the facilities that we have right now are just not what they need to be. No, they aren't. So the one in Kingston, I had a beautiful view and that's what saved me. I, I had a view of Lake Ontario and the sun would, would rise and set. And it was just like, it saved me. But being there for 30 days with other sick people, like I had one woman who was also in a state and she thought I was a witch. Mm. So she hated me and that like, you feel that. And are you interacting with the other patients on a regular basis? Yeah, you are. You are. You are. Like, there's dynamics going on, too, while people are sick, you know? The second stay was actually a lot tougher because I was with a tough crowd. Okay. (laughs) And it was mostly men. I was the only woman on the ward. I later found out that there was another ward full of women, but they didn't have any beds, so they stuck me in with all the guys and all the really, like, I had so many panic attacks while I was there because they'd lose their shit. They'd have to get drugged and like, I'm standing right there. And you're witnessing it. I'm witnessing this. And it's not like when, when a man's adrenaline is going and he wants to fight, like, look out. Mm. Yeah. So it's scary. It is. It was, it was, it was not an easy experience. I was pretty um, disappointed that I had to stay for eight days because I was done after five. I was toast. And when you, when we talk about mental health a lot and the importance of diet and Mm -hmm. and healing through food, like what types of food are they providing? Good food. It was good meals. Yeah. Yeah. They fed us really well. So that's one thing I have to say is that we were fed very well. I, I ate better in the hospital than I ever did at home. Do they do some type of assessment when you, when you get there to see if you're eligible to, I guess, take up the space or is it like, I'm here, I need help. And they take you in. Well, it depends. So if you go with like suicidal ideation, let's say they may, um, set you up with some supports and then send you home, depending on how severe they think it is. If you're very serious, they'll keep you for a 72 hour hold. And so what happened for me is, is I went in very manic. And so they put that 72 hour hold so that they could observe. And once that holds over, if they deem you should be staying, they form you, they give you a form one or something, I think it's called. And so you have to stay unless you appeal it. It's, it's, (laughs) it's a little bit scary to think about. 
it's scary to think about, but I think that sometimes it's a little necessary because when you're in that state and can't make a, you know, like a, a clear decision for your health, it might be helpful. One thing that boggled my mind though, was that I was voluntary both times I went, but they still formed me and kept me from like going outside or, or doing certain things. But when I was trying to get other people help, like for example, I was being harassed by a psychotic neighbor and she was psychotic and I was trying to get her some form of help because she was harassing me, <laughs> yeah. but nobody could do anything. Every time I called the police, well, we can't do anything because she's not a danger to herself or others. I'm like, excuse me, she just tried to break into my apartment. Oh, well, no, that doesn't count. So it's frustrating wow. because when I went as a voluntary, I ended up having to stay. But when people really need it, unless they're a direct danger to themselves or others, they won't take them in, which is a human rights thing. Yeah, but I've been on the other side of that where I've had to help a family member get help and not being so far gone into the mental illness that not even realizing that they need help. It's like, how do you convince someone who's ill that they're ill when their disease tells them that they're not? Exactly. Exactly. And I grew up with that. So not too with my mom, right? Like having to step on eggshells, not provoke, not deny her delusions, not deny what she was thinking. Like, oh my gosh, you can't fight it because to them it's so real. It is. It is very real. It's very real. And it's, it's really hard. I can say in this province, I don't know about anywhere else in the country because my experience is just in Ontario, but it is really hard to get someone help when they don't want it for themselves. Exactly. And to give you an idea of what that looks like, there is a specific form that you can have filled out with the police, but you have to take it to the justice of the peace. And you have to convince someone now that this person, like you said, what you were saying, like, they're not going to harm themselves or other people. Like this person may harm themselves or other people. And it's really hard to admit that about someone that's so close to you. So there's like um, an aspect of it for yourself. It's like, you feel guilty because it's like, how could this person that you know and love be that? but it's not fully them. Mm -hmm. And so now you have to convince a judge that this is the case and they have to believe you. Mm -hmm. And then from there they can grant you and it has to be a family member. Like it has to be someone close. You can't like, that's why with your neighbor, like it, it was really difficult for you. Exactly. Yeah. Then they give you seven days for the police to now find this person and take them to the hospital. Yeah. And then you have to convince the hospital that they need to be admitted. And it's really, really, really difficult. Mm -hmm. It is. And try finding someone who's like moving all over the place and is like in psychosis. Mm -hmm. So in my childhood, um, dealing with my mom. So at the age of 13, I was living with my mom and my grandma. So 13, 16, 18, oddly those times were the times my mom was manic and in the hospital. So those were my depression times. Those were also her severe mania times. And I was stuck trying to get her help. Like I literally could do nothing until she was to the point of the end. Like there's no, there's no more, like she's at the worst she could possibly be. Oh, now they'll finally do something. So I want to mention something though, for people who don't know, Some crisis lines have a crisis team. 
So if you're ever dealing with someone who is having a mental break and they're really lost and they're really struggling, like losing it, call the crisis line, see if they have a crisis team because they will send a social worker and a plainclothes officer to assess the situation. And then if they deem that the person is going to hurt themselves or others, they can bring the client into the hospital. Okay. So I did do this first, actually. Thank you for bringing that up. I did do this and they were so supportive, helped Mm -hmm. us stage an intervention, came to the house, but unless the person was willing to go, they couldn't do anything. And that's where the police had to be involved. And the police do come and handcuff and take you against your will if it's approved. And it's it's very scary and it's very traumatic to both the person that is being taken and the person who's had to make the decision of getting this put into place. Absolutely. I hope that person was was grateful to you after though. I hope. I, I think it's an ongoing battle. Yeah. Okay. It's it's an ongoing, yeah. As you know, like things change and as medications change and on and off and all of this stuff. And so it's a lifelong battle, but you did say something that really resonated. It's like, you can set your boundaries, which I've had to do. You can block and unblock as you need to, um, but don't disappear Yeah, and don't go away. And I think that's the hard part because it's like, it's scary for, for someone on the outside looking in to the illness. It's like, where's my place in this? Because I'm constantly the punching bag. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I've had to learn to set my boundaries. The ones they love the most. The ones they love the most. And so it's actually emotional Mm -hmm. because it's true. It's the ones that they love the most. It's easiest. And I have had to, it took me a long time to learn how to set boundaries. So then I set the boundaries and it's like, am I going against my own boundaries here? Mm-hmm. And, and and it's difficult. And, and I'm just sharing this because I just want anyone who is experiencing being on the outside or even being on the inside of this. It's like, it's difficult for everyone involved. And so I'm so grateful for you sharing your story. And I want to ask you about signs that perhaps the people on the outside can pick up before it gets as bad as it can get. It's a tough one. Like for me, it's different for everybody. Interestingly, you know, a lot of people with uh, mental illness can end up in a place where they feel like they're never going to be sick again. And sometimes it's in a healthy place and sometimes it's in a not healthy place. Right now from a healthy place, I feel like it's, it's like the chances are slim because I'm on an antipsychotic I'm on a mood stabilizer and I'm on an antidepressant. So if I end up a lot more energetic one day, Bruce doesn't say anything. If I end up a little more energetic two days, Bruce doesn't say anything. He doesn't say anything. And I think that is a good thing for me because I think it would be triggering for him to keep pointing out like, uh, are you manic or are you just hyper? You know, I do that enough to myself that I don't need other people doing it for me. But if I were to start going into mania, I would hope that someone would tell me. So what are the signs of that? I mean, a little bit of loss of reality, maybe Um, some delusions start coming out. I think that's the point where I want people to start pointing it out to me. Yeah. And I think it's really important to know about paying attention in children. Mm, Children. Yes. Right. It's like paying attention to the signs in your children 
It doesn't mean that you have to get them checked out every single day for every single different mood, but pay attention to certain behaviors. And there's nothing wrong with advocating for your child's mental health and Mm -hmm. getting them the support that they need at an early age, because you could potentially nip it in the bud. Mm -hmm. Okay. If you get them the right help. And so now they have a lifelong journey with it, but there's help and assistance. Yeah. Tools. Tools. And there's no shame. Mm, Exactly. There's no shame in, in getting your child help. No, none whatsoever. If you even think that they're struggling with depression or anxiety, and there are so many kids who are, get them some support. Get It doesn't necessarily have to start with medication. I know a lot of people are a little bit nervous about that word, especially when it comes to kids, but there are tools and there are people that can help them. I wish I had it when I was a kid. Man, oh man, the stuff I went through, I wish I had support. Exactly. And, and our parents didn't know any different. And, yeah. and now we do. Yeah. Now we know different. Well, humanity's evolved, right? Yeah. Like every generation that lives, like we've evolved from since our parents were kids. We're, it's a completely new world we live in. And it's a world where we're ending stigma. We're talking about this. We're opening up. There's no reason for you to feel ashamed that your kid might be suffering from a mental illness. Yeah, there's actually, there's hope. Yeah, lots of hope. There's hope. lots of hope. Hope is the one word that gets me through depression, man. When I'm depressed, I just look for that one little sliver of hope that'll get me through. I usually manage to find it. Sometimes I don't. I'm so proud of you. Thank you. So, so proud of you. I hear resilience in your story and strength and independence, and you keep getting yourself through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm proud of myself too. It's been quite the life. It's been quite the life. Thank you so much for being here today. Again, I'm looking forward to what is going to unfold in your life as you continue on this journey of health and growth. Are you okay with people messaging you and reaching out if they have any questions? Yeah, I'd love that. If if you want to reach out to me, you can reach out on uh, Instagram is a good place. Okay. And what's, what's your handle on Instagram? So at Christina underscore Rose underscore photos. Okay. And it's Christina CH. Yeah. Christina CH. And I'm going to tag you as well. So people have access and I really appreciate the continued support. That's a wrap on this week's episode of the Hasten app podcast. Please follow along on Instagram. Handle is at H-E-Y dot S-A-N-A-A to continue the conversation. And please share this with your friends and family if you think that anyone out there needs to hear today's message. Together, we can really help a lot of people. Have an excellent day and thanks for tuning in.